0: is at the end of the story and now we just wait what next i want to share with you some really good news this morning it comes from one of my favorite passages of scripture it'll be on the screen paul wrote this to the church in romans fifteen thirteen. he said may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the holy spirit It's an amazing declaration, an amazing promise. God is described as a God of hope. And he says, my prayer is this is what's going to happen. He's going to fill you with joy and peace. How many of you would love to have more joy and more peace in your life? This is the promise he gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a connection in this promise that's important for us to understand moving forward. And sometimes we don't make that connection. He says, so that you may overflow with hope. God wants to put so much of himself in you. Joy, peace, faith, hope. So that you can overflow in that hope to what is truly a hopeless world. And he says, your revelation of all the goodness of God in you is actually directly connected to how it flows out of you To others, because we live in a world that is desperately in need of hope. A single mom with three kids who wonders how she will be able to meet her bills this month needs hope. A businessman who wonders if his business will thrive or not needs hope. A young adult just graduating from college wondering what the future looks like with the economy and the way things are happening, needs hope. And when you look around the world, places like Africa and Asia, and you see all the crisis of the world, wherever you look, you discover right next door and across the globe, we live in a world that desperately needs hope. And Easter tells us we have the answer. May the God of hope fill you so that you will overflow with hope. And this morning we're going to look for a few minutes at a guy who caught this idea and had his life transformed through it. Because it has always been in the history of humanity that the world has needed hope. Thousands of years ago there was a nation called Israel and they needed hope. They went through a really rough civil war that really decimated the nation. They were 12 tribes, 10 of them were destroyed, two of them were taken into captivity. And for hundreds of years, they lived in this, They lived for this captivity for many years, and they didn't have a sense of hope. Their capital, Jerusalem, had been obliterated. And they were without hope, except for this guy. He was Jewish, but his life was pretty good. His name was Nehemiah. He had a good job. He had a career. He had a family. He made good money. In some ways, Nehemiah's life mirrors our life. For many of us in here... God has blessed us and we have a pretty good life. We have a family, we have a home, we've got a good job, we've got some sustainability, we've got a good church, things are good for us. Around us is a hopelessness, but we're doing okay. This was Nehemiah's story, and yet God's got something so much greater for Nehemiah, just like he's got something so much greater for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so that you may overflow with hope. And Nehemiah discovers God's far greater plan for him in the invitation God gives him to join God in bringing that hope to the world. And this invitation is what we're going to study by studying Nehemiah. So, if you've got your Bibles, open to Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, I'm not nearly the profound, deep theologian that your pastor Gary is, so I keep things really simple. Nehemiah's pattern is basically three stages he asks, he accepts, and he acts. It's really all Nehemiah does. He asks, he makes an inquiry into what the hopelessness is, he accepts, he embraces his responsibility. And he acts. And in each one of those stages, it's a pattern for us to follow that gives us direction so we can discover so much more of the God of hope as he flows through us. So let's look at this first stage. He asks. Nehemiah is willing and wants to know what's going on. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanaya, one of my brethren, came. He and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah is in captivity in Babylon, and he asks, hey, wait a minute, what's going on back in Jerusalem where there are some Jews who are still there? He takes the initiative. He knows the news is not going to be great, but he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't just think about his own situation and his own comfort. He wants to be aware there is a willingness to investigate his hurting world, to fully understand and see it. This is what Jesus did. The Son of God came to earth, and the Bible says he took on everything that we experience, our fears, our pains, our hurts, our temptations. He wanted to understand them all. He wanted to experience them so that he could connect with us. This is what Nehemiah is doing. And when we choose to follow this pattern, where we're willing to ask, Lord, show me the hurting world around me. We're actually taking on the heart of God in doing this. Why do we need to ask? Because we live in a world and in a society that shelters us from the hopelessness around us. We take old people and we put them in homes where we can't see the pain and suffering of death, We take homeless people and we put them in a part of the city that won't cause us to see them when we go back and forth to work and our activities. We take teenagers and we just kind of paint how they're okay and going through stages when they feel so lonely and so desperate inside of their heart, inside of their soul. And when you look across the globe and you see the crisis of the world in places of this world... Our society wants to kind of shield us from that. And God says, no, if if you're going to really discover me, then you've got to be like me. And it starts by asking. Listen to the response he gets, verse 3. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. and The gates are burned with fire. I mean, this is all bad news. It's removed from where Nehemiah is, so he has to ask. Gary told you that last month, Maria and I uh, had a ministry trip to Egypt. We were there just a few days before the bombs fell on Palm Sunday that killed over 60 Christians. When you live in a place like Egypt and many other places of the world, you live with this day in and day out we got to be honest and say, when we live in our country, and I'm so grateful to live in our country, there is kind of a shieldedness that comes where we're not as exposed to that. This is Nehemiah's state, where he lives in the king's court with his job. He's kind of shielded. But he asks and he gets this response, and the response is all bad news. There's affliction. There's disgrace. He says the walls and the gate are down, which means that the enemy can come in, And do whatever he wants to the people who are there. There is humiliation. They are defeated. Basically, the people tell Nehemiah they are hopeless. They have no hope whatsoever. You ever had one of those days when everything is going perfectly? It's a great day. The sun's out. It's good news for you. I had one of these days a few months ago. And it was just a great day. Everything was falling into place. Everything was perfect. And a friend of mine crossed my path. So I asked him, how you doing? scary question to ask some people. And he began to dump on me that he was not doing well. How would I respond in that moment like, no, buzzkill, don't do that to me. My day is so good. Nehemiah does not avoid this. He listens to it. His response is not to shield himself. He wants to overflow with hope and he understands to do that. It's got to begin with some honest questions and discovery about the hurting world that's out there. A couple of years ago, I was really impressed when your pastors came to me and they asked about India. They got a lot going on here, a lot of good work for the kingdom. But they said, tell us, help us understand just the hardship and the pain and the suffering that's going on with the churches and people in India. Nehemiah knows this is the starting place and for us, this is the starting place. God, help me to be like you. You asked, you came in flesh so you could understand and feel what I feel. Help me to do that. Help me to ask. Let me ask you an honest question this morning. Who might God be asking you to overflow with hope to? That has to begin with asking. Now remember, this is what positions you to get this revelation of God because your heart is becoming like his. Nehemiah asks. Then Nehemiah accepts Now you may say, really, Joel, do you need a whole sermon point on accepting an invitation from God? But I find in my life, and oftentimes in our lives, when we want to do something to help people, we jump too quickly into action. Without letting first God change our heart and discover something about Him, Nehemiah is not just accepting a volunteer role. He's accepting responsibility for a problem that God wants to solve? Look at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah does five things, Scripture says. He sits, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't acted in any way. He hasn't helped the problem. But these five things are how God wants us to accept his invitation to join him on bringing hope to a world in which we are also transformed by this joy and peace putting in us. First, Nehemiah sits. This means that he gives this time. He doesn't reject the pain. He leans into it. He doesn't change the channel when he sees the starving child. He takes time with this. He does not allow a busy world and all of his activities to distract him from the reality of the hopelessness that is around him. Years ago, I was actually out here when we lived in Chicago ministering at a church. And I got an urgent phone call from my family that my son, who was about 12 at the time, his appendix had burst. And he was going into emergency surgery. I immediately flew home. There were complications with the surgery and there were illnesses and diseases that came about because of his appendix bursting. And for a week, we were in the hospital with him. For a week, we were right by his hospital bed as all kinds of treatment was given to him. You know, I never once checked Facebook that week. Never went on Instagram. Never looked at my email. He had my full and complete attention for that week. This is what Nehemiah does. He says, I'm going to take a few days here and I'm going to sit And really let God speak to me through this. Everything else in the world can wait. But I want the full effect of this so that God would give me his heart. I'm not going to rush into this. And when I do that, not only will I discover the hopelessness, but God's going to do something in me through this. That's why this whole message is actually a wonderful, glorious message. It's about what God wants to do in you. May the God of hope fill you so that you can overflow with hope. Nehemiah, he sits. Then it says that he weeps. Now you've got to catch this. Nehemiah is a tough guy. He's the bodyguard of the king. I mean, he's got weapons and he's strong and he's tough. And yet in this moment, this word weep It's not like just somber. He's gushing in tears. Something's going on by God in his heart. This tough guy, he's broken. You see, when God invites us to join him in bringing hope to the world, he rarely does it subtly. He wants to move on you and give you his heart. So you are not only connected to him with an intimacy, but you discover his heart for the world. This happened to me last year. A year ago on Easter, I was invited to speak at a church in Toronto. So I did there and did their Easter weekend for them. They dropped me off at the airport uh, Sunday afternoon to catch my flight here back to L.A. My flight, it was about an hour before I was supposed to get on the flight, so I was checking the news on my phone, and I discovered that just really shortly earlier, in Pakistan, halfway around the world, Two bombs had gone off in a park where Christians were gathering to celebrate Easter. Sixty Christians had been killed by these bombs. And I'm in the Toronto airport and I read this news story and honestly, I just begin to weep. Now, don't misunderstand this story. I'm not much of a crier. And although obviously I have compassion, this is not just super spiritual Joel. I'm weeping out of my... Not out of my control, but because God's spirit is working on me. And it sounds like a really spiritual moment, but when you have really spiritual moments in public, it's really embarrassing. I mean, it's awkward. you got hundreds of people walking around. You're, you're a grown man going, ah, ah. So I went into the corner somewhere where I could hide, and I'm crying, and I'm going, Joel, I know this is sad, but what are you crying so much for? And it dawned on me. It wasn't just Joel crying. was God crying through Joel. God is not subtle when he invites us into his heart. God wanted to show me how he felt about the hopelessness. This is what's happening to Nehemiah. He sits down and he's willing to let God move on him and he begins to weep because God truly does move on him. We're bringing hope to the world is not just about an activity, but it's about connecting to God's heart, not just a project. It affects our identity to the core. Think about it. What is one thing that really wrecks you about the hopelessness in the world? One thing when you watch the news or hear about it, and it just really wrecks you. Can I suggest that it's supposed to do that? It's supposed to get you upset? Because that's how God gets you into the game. That's how he moves on you. He says, I want to give you my heart. So here's Nehemiah. He sits. And then he weeps. And then it says that he mourns. Now this word is a unique word. What's he mourning for? It means that he literally positions himself to take responsibility for what's going on in his world. Now we all know Nehemiah is not to blame for the devastation of Jerusalem. That was the sins of his forefathers. He isn't to blame for what's going on. And yet, here he is mourning and taking responsibility for it. Because when he mourns, he's positioning himself to truly, truly be used by God. He may not be the one to blame, but he's the one who's going to say, this is my responsibility. I mean, think of it. Think of this phrase. Taking responsibility for something that's not your fault. Who does that describe? Jesus. He took responsibility for something that was not his fault. You could even add to that phrase, and he helped those not really looking for help. Because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And now God says, I want you to be an extension. You've experienced this at Easter. You know his death, you know his resurrection. Now be an extension. And here's Nehemiah going, this is my responsibility. You see this throughout Scripture. There's a giant named Goliath, and he is ridiculing and mocking and destroying the Israelites. And David goes, "No, no, no! This is my responsibility." And he takes some stones. The New Testament church, which is supposed to be for everybody, stays in Jerusalem, and only Jews are allowed to come in. And Paul says, "No, this is my responsibility," and he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. This is how God works on us. Ray and I pastored for many years in Chicago. If you know anything about Chicago, it is a broken city. It is a really tough place. Last year, over 800 people were killed by gunfire in Chicago. And it would be really easy for our church, it was right in the heart of the city, right next to Wrigley Field. It would be really easy for our church to go, you know what, look at the broken educational system. You know, look at the corrupt politicians. You know, they call Chicago the windy city, not because of the wind off the lake, but because of the hot air coming out of politicians. It would be really easy for our church to say, look at the corruption. Look at the poor family values. But I knew if our church was going to bring hope to a hopeless city, it had to start like Nehemiah and saying, we may not be to blame for this, but this is our responsibility. We've been given the gospel. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the light. We've been given the truth. We walk in the kingdom. This is our responsibility And it is foolishness to expect anything else to be able to bring the world hope. This is what Nehemiah discovers. He sits. It's going to take some time, God. Work on my heart. He mourns. He takes responsibility. He weeps. God is really getting him into this game. And then it says he does these two things. He fasts and he prays. Oftentimes in Scripture, these two ideas always go hand-in-hand together. Because they're kind of linked. When you fast, you are removing yourself from the world. When you pray, you are drawing yourself to God. And so I fast, usually it's with food... I'm removing myself from the world so there's a purity in my heart, and then I pray I'm drawing myself to God. It's two different spiritual disciplines. Nehemiah does both these, and here's why he does it. If he's going to be used by God to bring hope, like you and I are going to be used by God to bring hope, he realizes he's got to get his heart right. There's got to be a purity. And here's why. When you bring hope to a hopeless world, as many of you do, what you discover People do not change overnight, over week, over month, sometimes not even over year. And it's easy to become cynical. And it's easy to get despair. And it's easy to say, forget it. And so we fast. We remove ourselves from anything that could corrupt our being a vessel of God's hope. It's easy when you become somebody who delivers hope to the world and has success, to become prideful. Say, wow, look at what I did to help that family out. So Nehemiah fasts. He says, no, I'm not going to let anything that can corrupt my heart be a part of this. I want to be a vessel of God's pure hope. But then he prays because Nehemiah also knows that on his own, there's no way he can do this. He does not have the capacity by himself to bring hope to the world. There are times in my life when I see a hopeless situation and I want to respond. But if I jump into that too quickly out of my own energy and my own knowledge, it rarely works out well. So Nehemiah takes time to fast. God, make sure my heart is right in this because this is something that will take time. And then he takes time to pray so that there is a complete dependence on God. Romans 15, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you become a vessel of hope for the world. Here's Nehemiah. He's willing to ask, Lord, show me what's going on. I'm not going to hide from it. He's willing to accept, it's not just about me doing some something, it's, it's really, God, about how you want to change me. Post-Easter, you've got so much more to do and grow in my heart, so much more you want to show me of yourself that I will only discover in connecting with you and your cause to this world. So he sits, and God works on his heart, and he weeps. And he mourns and takes responsibility. And he fasts and he prays so he is rightly positioned. Now, when you hear this, it's really important that you do not fall into the temptation of saying, oh, no, now I've got to be like Mother Teresa. I've got to go out and just save the world. Because when you hear and watch somebody like Nehemiah, it's tempting to think that, oh, now I've got to feed 5,000 homeless people every year. i got a friend who is a substitute elementary school teacher. She's just like Nehemiah. She'll go into a public school to third graders for a couple of weeks at a time, and when she goes in there, she asks, God, what's the situation with these kids and the broken families they come from? She's willing to weep and take responsibility for them while... She has them there and she brings hope to kids that are hopeless. I have another friend who is a bus driver and drives the bus for school kids. He's like Nehemiah. In his world, that's what he does. I have another friend who works in business and for his coworkers, he's like Nehemiah. For us who are parents, we are like Nehemiah, where we're willing to ask and accept and act with our kids. When you look around the world, into Africa or India. God's not asking any of us to become Mother Teresa. He's asking us to let him work on our heart and transform us into his likeness, and he will map the way out for us. But a fair question has to be asked. Who might you sit and weep and mourn and fast and pray for? Who is it that God's putting in your heart and your mind that you will accept his invitation to overflow and hope to? And I believe so much in the presence of the Holy Spirit that even as I ask that question, some of you are getting a name and a face right now. A neighbor or a coworker That God's moving on your heart, not with any sense of burden or guilt, but with a joy and an anticipation. Wow, God, you could connect me to you and you could use me? Who is that person that you would be willing to sit and weep and mourn and fast and pray and see God use you as an overflow? He asks, he accepts, and then Nehemiah acts. And when he acts, there's just a very simple principle that we learn from Nehemiah's pattern. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, was, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. So I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so I can rebuild it. You know what I love about this story? Nehemiah is scared to death. He's actually terrified. You see, in that culture, nobody was ever allowed to be sad in front of the king. If a messenger brought bad news, that messenger could be killed. If you were ever sad in front of the king, you could be killed. I personally would like this rule for my own life as well. You can't be sad in front of me. (laughs) Nehemiah is very clearly aware of this. But nonetheless, he cannot pretend. And the simple principle that we learn from Nehemiah is this. Be who you are and do what you can. Nehemiah is simply who he is, and he comes before the king. And he's going to look sad, but that's who he is. God's worked on his heart. And all he can do is ask the king one thing. Could you give me some time off so I can go work on this? It's all he can do right there at that moment. Be who you are and do what you can. Because if you go back to Romans fifteen thirteen. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him... ...so that you may overflow with hope. Listen to me, friends. You are not the source of hope. You are simply the vessel of hope. So you be who you are. And you simply do what you can. That God can work through. You see this throughout scripture. Do you remember when Moses was asked by God... ...to be a vessel of hope to set the Israelites free? God comes to Moses and said, Moses... I want you to work with me to set the Israelites free. And Moses says, no way. I cannot do this. I cannot speak. I have nothing available for me. And you would expect God to give Moses a pep talk. Yes, you can, Moses. You've got what it takes. You've got enough education. You've got enough experience. But God doesn't do that. God says one thing to Moses. Moses, you're right. You cannot do this. But I will be with you. And if God is with us, Be who you are. Do what you can. God looks at Moses and says, Moses, you can do this. And Moses says, how? And God says, well, what's in your hand? Moses says, I got a stick. And God says, that's enough. That'll do. A stick. Yeah, throw it down to the ground. Watch what I can do. Lift it over the sea and watch what I can do. Hit the rock and watch the water come out so the Israelites can drink. Watch what I can do. Whatever God has put in your hand, you know what God says? It's enough. David He's going to slay the giant. And David's going, oh, and, what's in your hand? A couple of stones. That's enough. You can do it. When he sends the disciples out, what's in your hand? They said, nothing. God, That's enough. You can do it. What we learn through Nehemiah is when we join God on his mission of bringing hope to the world, we don't have to be anybody else. And we don't have to wait until we get something else. Because oftentimes, when you hear a message like this, the temptation is to think, oh, Joel, yeah, you can go to Egypt. You may be spiritually strong enough, but me, if you knew what was going on in my life. And what we learn from Nehemiah is he simply is who he is, doing what he can. There's a New Testament verse that parallels this principle. It comes from Ephesians 2.10. It says this, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Literally, you are God's piece of art. You are exactly who he wants you to be, where he positions you. Be who you are, because when you don't do that, you fall into this temptation of wanting to copy other people. And it's who you are as that vessel of hope that God chooses. We got a call from the bank a couple of years ago, and they said, we want you to know, Mr. Holm, that you've been a, a victim of identity theft. Somebody is using your name and your identity out there, using your credit card. And I went and told my wife, I said, Marie, I said, uh, the bank called, and, and, you know, I've been a victim of identity theft. And she went, no. And I said, it's okay, they're taking care of it. She goes, I don't care about the credit card. I'm just thinking there are two of you out there right now. This is bad enough. <laughs> Do not be a victim of identity theft. Do not let anybody ever tell you that how Jesus recreated you through last weekend's Easter celebration isn't enough. And isn't right. Nehemiah is who he is. Scared to death. Honest. God, if I'm going to be a vessel of hope, I'm going to trust that who you are in me, it's enough. And then do what you can. It says you were God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not to do great, phenomenal works good works. Let me explain to you how this works. When we do good works, we give God something in which he can do great works. We're the ones that do good works, he's the one that does great works. We should never reverse that thinking, oh, I got to do some great works for God. Think of the boy who had a few fish and a few loaves. 5000 people need to be fed. What does he do? A good work. Here's a couple fish, a couple loaves. And then Jesus does a great work. And 5,000 people are fed. Think of the four guys who had a friend who was crippled. They do a good work, they lower him through the roof. Their good work does not result in hope coming to their friend. But Jesus takes their good work and turns it into a great work, and he is healed. One of the most glorious stories of this principle do you remember the widow with the two mites? She gives two mites into an offering. It's a good work, but realistically, doesn't pay the electric bill for one day in this place. She does a good work. But think literally of the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been raised for the kingdom by her story. How all of us have been inspired, all of us have been taught by this lady... And the good work she did, and God takes that good work, and over two thousand years does an incredibly great work, and hundreds of millions of dollars go into His kingdom work. This is the principle: you do a good work, God does a great work. Too often times we think we're the ones who have to do a great work. No, you let God work on your heart, so you be who you are. Then He's going to ask you this question: What can you do? What's in your hand? And when you say, this is all I've got, you know what he'll tell you? That's enough. And through you then, hope comes to the world. And the result of this, look at chapter 2, verse 8. Because of the gracious hand of my, of my God was on me, the king granted my request. I got to tell you, I think Nehemiah was blown out of the water. Really, I think he was so surprised. He goes in front of the king who doesn't do anything for anybody that doesn't help himself. And he goes in there sad and he's scared to death and he's going, I can only do what I can do and be who I am. And the king says, yeah, Nehemiah, I'll help you do this. This is what's waiting for us. When we're really to position ourselves where God will work on our heart, well we'll ask and we'll accept, when we will act just being who we are, Doing what we can what is waiting for us is this ridiculous experience with God as he works through us and the coworker that you were sure would never come to church shows up because you did something good and God did something great. This is the story of what happens after Easter now We don't have to do this alone. There's this little hidden verse in this story in chapter 2, verse 17, where Nehemiah throws in a really important little insight for us. He said, Then I said to them, These are others around him, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Being a vessel of hope, asking, accepting, acting on your own, boy, it's a bit scary. So God says, I'm not not let you have to do this alone. I'm going to create a church, and together as a church, I'll let you do this. Nehemiah says, hey, let's do this together. And if we do this together, nothing can stop God working through us. Marie and I went to Egypt a few weeks ago. It's a volatile place to be right now. If we had to be there alone, it's pretty scary. We feel like we don't have much to offer just what's in our hand. But we knew, not only were there people and friends all over the world praying for us, we were working with Egyptian Christians that were there. Together. And I would ask you, Bridge, as a church, together, what could God do as you ask, accept, and act? Let me pray for you. Just take a moment and... Uh, Close your eyes and just have a moment with God. A glorious, faith filled, anticipatory moment. There should not be any guilt or burden, only an excitement of after Easter, now the adventure really begins. And I get to discover so much more of God when I open my my heart to him and he turns my heart into his heart for the world. Be willing to let God know just right now, you'll ask, you will accept, and you will act. Because I'm going to pray a very special prayer. I'm going to pray literally... Practically, in the next week or two. God's going to give you the experience Nehemiah had and somebody, somehow, is going to cross your path. And because of this moment, because of his spirit, you're going to know it's time for me to join God in yet another way. Lord, we are so grateful, indescribably grateful, for your work on the cross for us and your resurrection. You have given us life, and that abundantly and that eternally. And I thank you, Lord, that for our good, you invite us to join you in bringing hope to this world, that you fill us with joy and peace that will overflow to a hopeless world. Lord, I pray for each person who's in this auditorium this morning. I thank you for their life. I thank you for your love for them and their love for you. And beyond my earthly words, by your spirit, Lord, would you give each of us a sense of anticipation and faith as we join you in your mission to this world? Lord, I pray in these next few weeks, even this coming week, Lord, that you would bring someone across our path, that we would know it is time to ask and accept and act. That as we are a vessel of hope, your joy and peace would fill each and every one of us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the Bridge Church. I thank you for how it is a beacon of hope this region and even to this world and I pray Lord God that you would continue to pour your spirit into this place that we would be a church that like Nehemiah stands up and with faith and enthusiasm takes responsibility for a hopeless world around us continue to give us your heart continue to teach us Lord and lead us That we would be like you as we join you. I thank you for each person here. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, guys. I love you guys. Thanks for letting me come and share with you. Did
1: you enjoy that this morning? Give Joel one more hand. When Joel finished his message first service, I, I turned and I asked him, Joel, could you come back and preach that again next week? And then the next week and the next week. How many of you, how many of you heard some things from God today that really hit home with your heart? Did you hear some things? Yeah, I want to encourage you this week. Uh, that will be up on the website tomorrow or Tuesday. Uh, listen to it again this week. Take time to listen to it. You can download it on iTunes, I think. Listen to it. Listen to that message. I mean, I'm going to listen to it again because it speaks so many things, so much in that message. But maybe you're here today, and maybe you came to church. Maybe somebody invited you, or maybe you, know, maybe you just saw the church on the hill, and you wondered what it was about. Maybe you came here today, and maybe you've, maybe you've never been in relationship with God. Maybe you don't understand the hope that Joel was talking about. You know, what your heart is longing for, what you're looking for, that empty place inside can only be filled by God's love and by His Son. The truth of the matter is, God put His own Son on a cross to pay for our sins that you and I might come into relationship with Him and become His children. Maybe today you came to church and you thought, man, I just don't want religion. We don't want to give you any religion but we would love to introduce you to a God who wants to be in relationship with you, a God that will walk with you through every situation. Maybe you're in a dark moment right now. He'll be there now every day for the rest of your life throughout eternity. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your Father. Maybe right now you're sitting in church here and maybe you just feel something knocking on your heart. That's God saying, I want you to know me and I want, I want you to know all of my love and all my blessing. I want you to know this hope that they've been talking about today. Scripture says we're saved by grace. That's God extending forgiveness and knocking on our heart. But It also says we're saved by grace through faith, which means I have to open my heart and invite him in. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, I wish God was involved in my life. It all starts with you inviting him into your life. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. You do that with simple words. That's what prayer is. Prayer is just words talking to God. I want to lead everybody in the house in a simple prayer that will just... Help you open your heart to God. And I want to ask you to wrap your heart, wrap your faith around these words and let it become your prayer. Let's ask God to get involved in our lives. Everybody bow your heads if you would, please. I'm going to ask everybody in the house to pray their prayer. You don't have to scream it out loud, but just pray this prayer with me this morning. Say, God, I need you. I open my heart to you. And I ask you to come into my life. I need a Savior. So I put my faith in Jesus to become the Lord of my life. From this moment forward, I ask you to be my father. I want to be your child. I want to walk with you. I want to learn your ways. And I want to know you. Bring me the hope that only comes in Jesus. And I thank you today. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time or, or maybe you've just been away from God and you've been the prodigal on the run it's the most important decision you can ever make in this life to let Jesus Christ become the Lord of your life we want to welcome you to God's family and this morning if you prayed that prayer with us we want to give you a gift we got a little booklet called the next seven days it's really simple reading it'll help you understand what this relationship with God is all about we want to give it to you no charge no strings attached When we finish service in a few minutes, there'll be prayer teams here at the front of the building. You can just come forward to one of the prayer teams and say, can I get that booklet? They'll give it to you right there, no strings attached. If you've got questions, they'll talk with you. If you want prayer for something else, they're here to help you. But if you just want the book, you can come and get it and go, no strings attached. If you're in a big rush, you can go out in the lobby and straight across the lobby, just before you leave, on that wall right there, you'll see a screen. It's got the next seven days right there. Stop by and say, can I get the booklet? We'd love to give it to you today and help you get started. Walking with God. Can we just welcome people into God's family today? God bless you. You know, Joel was telling some stories this morning in his message, and this is the time in service where we worship God with our giving. And as he was telling stories about Chicago,